This is the final week in uh, the second section of three sections of the New Testament book of Philippians that we're going to be looking at this winter and spring. And if you're new to this conversation, know that in the first section, we discovered that this letter written by the Apostle Paul to a group of Christians as part of a church in a place called Philippi was structured and intended as what's called a friendship letter, meaning Paul gushed his love and adoration out on them in hopes that they would feel the same way about each other in hopes that their love would abound more and more. And we learned in that first section that according to Paul, if they could live that way, if they could live with what Paul called harmony amidst their uniqueness and diversity as individuals, if their love could abound in that harmonious way, then they could live together as a clear and compelling picture of Jesus to their world. And so after that first section, discovering Paul's heart for harmony, we've been looking at a few now practical how-tos that Paul provides to the Philippian church on how to become those people, how to live in that harmonious, abounding love kind of way. We've looked at some of the core ingredients like overcoming opposition, you know, whether it's conflict or difficulty or, or even just the fear associated with opposition. We looked at the, the posture of humility and the other's orientation of Jesus that it's required among all of us to experience and live out that abounding love kind of harmony. And last week, we looked at the role that obedience plays, that the, the importance in unity and diversity of being united around the person and the purpose of Jesus. Today, we're going to look at a fourth and final ingredient in the series we're calling Into the Groove, because we're into the groove now in, in trying to live this abounding love way, discovering the habits of harmony, not just the heart of harmony, but the habits of harmony. And so if you brought a Bible along uh, or have a Bible app on your personal device, turn to Philippians chapter two, where we're going to begin in probably the most important part of the, the section that we're going to look at today uh, in verse 14, where it says this. It says, do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Read it again, because it's pretty technical and pretty important to, to what we're going to discuss today. Paul says, do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. So we're going to discover uh, what this meant to the original audience. We've got to appreciate, if nothing else, that to a first century reader, this first section of this uh, passage that we're going to look at today oozed of overtures of references to the people of Israel at the time when they wandered the wilderness. That's really the key for us understanding the, the, the passage today. And if you're unfamiliar with uh, kind of the Old Testament history, there was a time where God's chosen, called out, special people found themselves wandering in a wilderness. It was after God had miraculously rescued them from Egyptian slavery and en route to God supernaturally delivering them the land of Canaan, a land that he promised to them for generations. 
And in between this miraculous exodus, this miraculous release of oppression and slavery en route to the supernatural deliverance of abundance and thriving in the promised land, Israel found themselves in the wilderness. And if you're unfamiliar with what happened there, you need to know that in the wilderness, Israel complained. They grumbled. They argued with each other. They argued with God. They complained that the food that God had been providing was too bland and tasteless. They complained that there was nothing to do, and they longed for the good old days of of, uh, life in Egypt, even though they were grossly mistreated when they were there living as slaves. they, They complained that God had abandoned them, that God had forgotten them, that God didn't care about them, kind of in a what have you done for me lately sort of a way. That was kind of the, the, the foreground feature of Israel in the wilderness, this heart of complaint. And when they were there, you can look this up in, in Deuteronomy chapter 32, God not only declared them as faithless, he declared them as a wicked and crooked generation. So what Paul is quoting here, when he describes what it's like if they were to live not complaining and arguing, not living as Israel uh, in the wilderness, they would be, he says, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. He's specifically contrasting how they would live to how Israel lived when they grumbled and complained and were declared by God to be a warped and crooked generation. He's basically saying, live in the exact opposite way that the nation of Israel lived when they wandered the wilderness. And so we just need to understand and be super clear uh, as to why it was that they were living in a way that was defined by grumbling and complaining. Because Paul's not just speaking to the, to the behavior of critique or complaint, like if you're at a restaurant, you know, and your meal's cold and you're, you know, anxious about whether you should send it back or not. He's not talking about generic complaint here. When he's talking specifically about the nation of Israel wandering the wilderness, living out this heart of grumbling and complaining, at the end of the day, they had forgotten who God was among them. They'd forgotten the life that God had for them. They had forgotten the miraculous release of oppression that they'd recently experienced and forgotten the promise that God was carrying them towards of abundance and flourishing. In short, they'd forgotten who they were, the called out special people of God, and they had lost the sense of privilege of being God's people. That's what Paul's speaking to here, is the loss of the sense of privilege of being God's called out special people. That's ultimately the heart that he's looking for in the Philippian church. He goes on to say what will happen if they live that way, if they can retain and reclaim and hold on to that sense of wonder and awe and joy and privilege of being God's called out special people. In verse 16, he says, then... You'll shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. Here, Paul provides two practical implications if they can live with this palpable sense of privilege of being able to live as God's called out and special people. It says on the one hand that they'll shine like stars in the sky, literally that they'll live in contrast to the people around them as shining light in a dark world. Appreciate that 
because the whole point of this letter is to get the Philippian church to live in this abounding love kind of harmony that would clearly and compellingly reveal Jesus to the world around them. In essence, what he's saying is that if they'll live with this palpable sense of privilege of being God's called out and special people, that they'll essentially fulfill the purpose of this letter that Paul is writing to them. But more than that, he says, and then something else will happen. Not only will you shine as stars in the sky, he says, I'll be able to boast. Not only will they fulfill the purpose of Paul's letter, they'll actually fulfill the purpose of Paul's life as far as his relationship with them is concerned. And he uses two images, one from the sporting world and one from the working world that were common in his day, to describe that his investment in them would not be like running or competing or working or laboring in vain. That it wouldn't be a waste of his investment in them if they're to live in this palpable sense of privilege. Well, this is a bit of an aside is why I feel like this may be the single most important ingredient in these habits of harmony that we've looked at in the second section of text, because it, nowhere else has Paul kind of made an, an aside comment to describe just how significant the implications would be, that if they were to live this way, they would actually fulfill the purpose of this entire letter, and on top of that, fulfill the purpose of enti uh, Paul's entire life. I think that Paul's highlighting that this particular attribute is a disproportionately big deal when it comes to experiencing an abounding love and harmony with each other. And so then he wraps things up this way in verse 17. He says, but, he says, even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. This section might feel kind of confusing because he's just described the joy and pride that he would feel if the Philippian church were to live in a way that, that exuded that palpable sense of privilege of being God's people instead of defaulting to grumbling and complaining and arguing. It almost feels like he's saying the opposite here, but in describing the opposite, he's making the same point. And I'll try to explain what I mean here. He's saying, even if, the Philippian church doesn't live in a way that would provide that meaning and significance to Paul. He says he'll continue to be glad and rejoice. He describes it uh, kind of using an Old Testament metaphor as if he's a priest offering a drink offering. So instead of offering a, an animal as a sacrifice or a grain offering, sometimes they had these wine offerings where you would take a, a, a jar or a bottle of wine and you'd simply pour it over the altar in the tabernacle. And simply pouring out the wine would have felt like, at some level, uh, aside from the offering that it was, kind of a waste of a, a good bottle of wine. And what Paul is saying here is that even if the Philippian church doesn't live in a way that will bring meaning and purpose to his life, even if his life's kind of a waste in that sense, it's just poured out as a drink offering, he'll continue to be glad and rejoice because, his point is, because Paul's joy doesn't come from the circumstance of whether his life bears fruit through them or not. Paul's joy, his sense of privilege, isn't dependent on the circumstances around him. Knowing that Paul is writing from a Roman prison whose future and destiny is probably headed towards martyrdom. 
Paul is saying that the circumstances of his life aren't what bring him joy. It's the sheer privilege of being able to be a follower and servant of Jesus. And it's in that non-circumstantial, you know, non-conditional kind of way that he invites them to share in that joy with him as well. To again, as he's encouraged from the beginning, not be like Israel in the wilderness and forget that they were the called out special people of God, but like him, to live with a palpable sense of privilege of being able to follow and serve Jesus. That's the section that we're going to look at today as we wrap up this second section of our study in the book of Philippians. The question, though, is what is God through Paul trying to say to us today? And personally, I feel like the very thing that Paul wants the Philippian church to consider is the same thing God wants us to consider through Paul and his letter to the Philippians today. And that is, you know, quite simply, but I think quite significantly, do we feel like our life in Christ is a privilege? Do, do we consider faith in Jesus to be a privilege? Do we consider participating in a faith community to be a privilege? Do we live in the sacrifices and calling of being people of faith? Do we live with a palpable sense that that is a privilege, literally that that is a gift from God made possible by grace alone? through faith alone, in Christ alone, for us to receive as a gift? Or has faith become more of kind of a burden? Has it become more of a hassle? Has church engagement become more of a stress or a burden, something that we complain and argue about? Oh, that, that's the simple but I think significant question that God, through Philippians 2, is asking us today, is, is faith a privilege to us today? Do we live with a palpable sense that it is an indescribable privilege to follow and serve Jesus? You know, obviously there's a cost associated with faith and, and with following Jesus. Jesus himself encourages people to count the cost before responding to his invitation to follow him. Certainly, faith is full of service. Faith is full of sacrifice. Faith, we've learned recently, is about relinquishing privilege for those of less privilege. There's a cost associated with it. The question is, do people of faith relinquish that privilege? Do people of faith make those sacrifices, engage in that service, pay that cost with joy out of a palpable sense of privilege? Or begrudgingly, hesitantly, kind of with complaint and argumentation because it's kind of a hassle and sort of cramps our styles in this world. That's the simple but significant question that this passage is asking us today. Is faith a privilege or a burden? I had a longtime friend and mentor who for years would do this kind of faith pulse check with me. Every time we got together, we'd have coffee or lunch or whatever, and they'd say, hey, how you doing? And I'd kind of give them an update on how things are going, and they'd say, no, no, no. They'd say, is, is, is your life and ministry, the language they use, they said, are you in a got-to place or a get-to place? 
Are you in a got-to place or a get-to place? Is faith a got-to or a get-to for you? Is ministry a got-to or a get-to for you? And when they framed it that way, when they talked about got-to or get-to, it was so instantaneous how I could evaluate that in my heart in whatever season I found myself in. And in times where it was more burdensome or busy or tiring or whatever, and I kind of defaulted to more of a got-to place, that question would immediately kind of recenter me around the gift and the opportunity that a life of faith of following and serving Jesus actually is intended to be. And I think the question that we're being asked today, and maybe the practical step that each of us can take today, either right after this uh, morning service or uh, sometime during the week in our personal reflection, or maybe as we discuss and debrief uh, today's message with our life group, is to simply do the faith audit of evaluating for ourselves whether our life of following Jesus is more got to or more get to. You know, when our alarm goes off first thing in the morning, earlier than it probably needs to because we want to spend some quiet time alone with God to start our day, is our default when we open our eyes of got to or get to. When the alarm goes off on Sunday morning, hopefully a little later in the morning, and we have the opportunity to reciprocate encouragement with our church family and our large group gatherings, is that on a Sunday morning a got to? We've got to go to church because we happen to be serving in kids ministry or on prayer team or, you know, in the band or in FIM somewhere. Or, or is that opportunity to gather a get to? Think about after a hard day's work on a night when your life group is meeting and you have the chance to get together with your group and kind of debrief life and things and talk faith and encourage and nurture each other and go deeper in your life with Christ. Is that a got to? Is it something you dread or is it something that you can look forward to because of the opportunity and privilege that it provides? When it comes to engaging in the anchor cause of your location, is that a get to? Or do you keep making excuses to the pastors and leaders there as to why you just can't get involved quite yet? Are you being hounded to volunteer somewhere in ministry? Or does using your gifts to bless other people, uh, is that something that brings you joy and a sense of privilege because you get to do that? Maybe most importantly, when it comes to pooling and, and stewarding our money together, is that a got to? That's someone else's responsibility to pay the bills around here? Or is giving God back the first fruits of what he's entrusted to you and pooling resources together to do together what we could otherwise never do alone as a faith community, a tremendous opportunity that we get to do together? Is pooling resources together a got to or get to? I think that's a simple question that God's asking us today. Is faith and followership and the sacrifice and service associated with it something that is got to in our lives that we grumble and complain about or something that we get to do? Because we're never going to live an abounding love, heart and dynamic of unity and oneness and harmony together unless we all live out of a palpable sense of the privilege of being God's called out special people. And I think that this is no better way to wrap up this series and this section of our study of the book of Philippians. It's also no better way to launch us in to a three-week kind of mini-series as we focus on and celebrate the wonder of what Jesus did on Easter weekend. Because when we reflect on what happened, particularly on Good Friday, 
when Jesus gave himself up for the sin of you and me, appreciate that that wasn't a got to for Jesus. Jesus made forgiveness available as a get to. It's out of his love for us that we can experience that gift of forgiveness. Similarly, when he rose from the dead and he made his living, risen spirit available to indwell and empower individual forgiven followers of Jesus to make change possible in our lives, and more than that, to unite us together as a family so that we could carry on his life and legacy and work in the world, when he invited us into being those partners with him and co-labors to continue his legacy on planet Earth, that was a get-to for him. He didn't look down on us as, oh, you know, this is all he's got. That was a get-to to invite us into this life of faith and partnership with him. The question is, when Jesus offers that gift to us, are we receiving that as a gift from him? And are we living in the palpable sense, moment by moment, day by day, that we get to live out an imponderable gift through life and faith in Christ. Gang, as we approach the Easter season, let's never forget the unthinkable privilege that it is to be God's dearly loved, rescued children. And on top of that, let's never forget the incalculable, kind of imponderable idea that he didn't just rescue us from a life of meaninglessness, sin, and death, but included us as a forgiven family, as partners with him, as co-laborers with him to participate together in his kingdom-building, eternity-altering plan in the world, and that together as a family, even in the uniqueness of this community called Southridge, Jesus has given us a once-in-a-lifetime for all eternity opportunity. And let's live with the palpable sense of privilege of being God's called out special people. Not only is that sense of privilege what faith is ultimately intended to be about, that palpable sense of privilege, instead of defaulting to grumbling and complaining and arguing, that, arguably more than anything, is how harmony happens and how you and I and us together live with an abounding love. Let's pray together. Jesus, I just want to thank you uh, again for your word, and uh, I, I pray that you would penetrate the significance and the simplicity of it into each of our heads and our hearts today. And that you would just recalibrate the sense of opportunity and privilege and joy that we can have in response to your gift of forgiveness and your gift of new life in following and serving you. I pray that in every single one of us, you would do the work in our hearts to move us from got to, from the burden and maybe the inconvenience and the challenge of the costs and the sacrifice and the, the, the stewardship of our lives in faith to appreciate that we get to do this. We get to give our lives away. We get to receive from you and in response to give our lives fully back to you and to others. And I pray that we would do it with an increasing amount of joy so that individually and together as a family, you would fill us up with that abounding love so that we can shine like stars in the sky and reveal you clearly and compellingly to the world around us. Jesus, make us those people, especially as we approach this Easter season. We love 
love and celebrate you and your work in and among us. We pray all these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.